Hey, everybody, this is Frank Rains Jr. from History Through the Eyes of Faith. Just wanted to give you a heads up to check the link in our bio for Kofi. It's a way that you can go and support the podcast if you like what you're hearing and also a way to find some merchandise and some extra content. So check out the link in our bio. Head over to Kofi. It's a great way to support the podcast. Did I miss anything, Ange? Oh, add in. You can also comment there, ask questions, and join us in a chat room. Oh, wow. And there's so that you can chat with us. Anyway, check out Kofi. The link is in our bio. I'm passionate about teaching this material because I think that we have to understand history to understand what's happening today. Pork tenderloins, only $3.29. And how did that become the way I experience church now? Hey, listen, you know, you've got the creation, we've got um, Abraham, we've got Moses, we've got all these things that have happened. We're now part of that story. Because to me, the <laughs> This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast with Angie Ferris. I'm your host, Frank Ranks Jr., along with producer Wes. We're glad you're here. Hey, everybody, it's Frank. Glad you found us. Episode 63 of History Through the Eyes of Faith, the podcast. History Through the Eyes of Faith. I'm here with producer Wes, and we couldn't do this without Angie Ferris. What? What's the hand up? It's just always such a buildup to the Angie Ferris well, thing. Well, it's only, you're the reason, you're the reason for the podcast. Mm. It was your brainchild. It was, it's your, it's your content. It's your creativity it's your uh investigation it's your study and so yeah i mean i'm i'm pretty pretty sure that if you weren't here today <laughs> wes and i would not be doing the history through the eyes of faith podcast i'm pretty sure that too yeah so we're here 63 only a few episodes ahead of us of 62 episodes if you want to run and get caught up this is your first listen um can i just say something yeah. right there real quick I think it's kind of cool because we kind of have an encyclopedia now, like history from creation to 600, 700 AD. So if there's a, something you want to hear about, go look and see what's if we recorded on it. Where are we around 600 what? Yeah, well, 700, 6 to 7. So we're the fact moving that we're on episode eight. 63, there's some kind of easy math. Of how many years we've covered by on average in each episode. You're so funny. 10 years? Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Sure. We've covered ten years. No, on no. Each episode. that's of AD. That's not. We go back. If oh, if you're gonna yeah. go with a timeline that so it doesn't work. Never mind. It would be six, four thousand years, forty five hundred yeah, years. Yeah, but like when that. we say things like the beginning of time was twenty five hundred years ago, that's people are not gonna. No, we're not 4, saying that. You know what they call that? They call that a new earth theory. A new earth And theory. just to remind folks, if you weren't listening back at the beginning, <laughs> what? I'm laughing at no, that the way you're going to, exp- it's okay. It's not extreme. It's just funny because I kind of know where you're going by the face, look on your face and the tone of voice. Anyway, we go ahead. It's fine. <sighs> okay, Nothing's wrong. So if you the weren't with us back theory. in the beginning and we were talking about, um, putting events on a timeline and putting biblical events on a timeline. And so everything is like counting backwards, right? And so um, you can, in the Bible, it'll say this dude, like Adam, lived this many years and had this child, and then this many years later he died, and then this, you know. So you can count backwards and and do time if you started with Adam as year as creation, beginning, the first guy. Yeah, and so if you do that, then it's like uh, history, recorded history starting with creation is about 6,000 years old. So we're not, we're not into the argument of how old the earth is and how this all, that's just, if you're just counting years along that line, yeah. then there we go. And things start lining up about the time of the Exodus, you know, as far as, maybe before that, as far as the dating of an, an actual historical, historic calendar that you would say what year was the Exodus and what year, you know, you can start putting putting events together on a timeline that include biblical events, which well, is like 1200, 1500 BC, something like that. Well, then let me ask you this question, which is, 
totally off the cuff. We're just fresh into the episode. But you talked about just now, if you do that, some things start lining up around the Exodus. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of the Jews going to Egypt, right? Yeah, that's the Exodus. So when they get down to Egypt. No, the Exodus is when they come out. They come out of Egypt. Yeah. But they were in Egypt. For about 400 years. When they were in Egypt. Mm -hmm. Did this ever come up? I don't know if this ever came up. When they were there, were there pyramids there? They think that they built them, that the, the Hebrew slaves, which was the situation before they were delivered out of Egypt, mm-hmm. they were slaves and they made bricks. Okay. And so there's a good possibility and some research has been done and somebody could have fun looking this up on the Hebrew people being involved in the building of the pyramids. Okay. Or there's other theories the pyramids were made by aliens. Of course. Frank, right. yes. Well, aren't they like a an architectural wonder? They are. And actually, I saw something just recently, um, somewhere. I mean, I, it was it was in media on the TV, so it was probably something on YouTube that popped up. But that there's a, I think it's the Great Pyramid that they've discovered a chamber in there that Uh-oh. they can't get to. That there's no, it's like you can, because of, oh, I don't know all this science stuff, but because of of technology, I guess like radar or sonar or ultrasound or whatever it would be called, they can determine that there is a a, a spot, a a vacuum, a A compartment, a space in a certain part of the temple that has no entrances to it and you can't get to it without causing destruction to... I said temple, but that's kind of what they were, causing destruction to the pyramid. A void, there's, that's it. A void. Yeah. Well, I had, I happened to bring up just now, this is just all stream of consciousness, you know, how we get kicked off. We start talking about stuff. The, I said aliens, which reminded me of a birthday gift that you got me. Oh, yeah. Which was in between recordings of 62 and 63 now. Thank you, everyone, for the birthday wishes. Um, you got me some coffee from, uh, Apocalypse Coffee Roasters down in old Melbourne, Florida. Little mm-hmm. shout out to Apocalypse Coffee. But the coffee has little, like, it's a UFO type themed coffee place. Yeah, all their, co- yeah. Mm-hmm. All their coffees are. But I'm trying to find it because they use the acronym UFO, even though all their graphics and design and names are all around, you know, a UFO landing or attack or apocalypse or whatever. It's yeah. cute and clever, um, which all apocalypses and UFO attacks are cute and clever. <laughs> um, but they they use the, the acronym UFO stands for something else. And I'm trying to find it on their website right now. And I can't. So if listeners know what it is, it says something like, oh, 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 maybe it's the UFO stands for something like unfiltered. It's taking too long to find it. So talk about something while we find that later. Maybe producer Wes can figure out what UFO from Apocalypse Coffee stands for. That's cool. And we can share it later. Yeah, it's a neat shop, <clears throat> y'all, if you're in the Melbourne. We have several listeners in Melbourne. Yeah, the so coffee that- was great. I had the uh, the Invasion was the name of the the brew that I was given. It's craft roasted and organic, and uh, somebody's going to tell us what the UFO stands for. So do for. you have a grinder? Did you? I have a grinder, oh, and good. I have an auto drip maker. I got all of that out of storage to make the coffee. Cool. Because I usually do a, a K-cup deal. Yeah. But now I have, I've always, I mean, I've had it for a long time. I just don't usually use it. So I got it. I hadn't used it in over a year. Yeah, I ordered the beans just because I thought, well, even if you don't have a grinder, you can find some place to grind it, and that way it'll be fresher. Yeah, all when, fresh this morning. Yeah. So, yeah, it was great. Um, so in episode 62, we talked about uh, the spread of Islam in the, in the 7th century, right? And yeah. How, the, yes. And how but fast. From the 7th into the 8th, yes. How fast it grew. Mm-hmm. And we also talked a little bit about the structure of the religion and the descendants of Muhammad and how 
they have uh, kind of their own priesthood and how they're, I guess. Well, I think if I'm remembering right, we mentioned how there's like two sects, S-E-C-T-S, of Islam, the Sunnis and the Shia. And the difference between them that dates back to right after Muhammad's death was that the Sunnis were... uh, a belief that a caliph could come from a devout Muslim and the Shias felt like it should be someone descended from Muhammad. And so his, I think it's Ali, who I think was his son-in-law or no, that's not right. Anyway. Um, I don't know if it was Ali. Ali was the, was the, uh, yeah, he was, okay. the, he was the original one that was related to Muhammad that, that, and he ended up being the fourth caliph. You know what? This could be confusing when you say Ali and Muhammad and all that. Yeah. For those that aren't really tied into what we're talking about. Well, Muhammad's the prophet that yeah, started. Is, oh, you're not, being funny. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just saying when I'm right here, Muhammad and Ali, I'm thinking Muhammad Ali. Well, that's where his name came from. He gave oh, no, him, it did. Yeah. Which was the joke I tried to make in 62, <laughs> uh, 61, about People calling him Muhammad. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Anyway, so that that distinction we still hear about that disagreement between the two tribes, and but we we didn't do a deep dive into the current condition of it and what act, each group actually believes and all that kind of stuff. That you know is for another time, but it does play out in history. In that there was yeah. a disagreement, and and I think something that was not emphasized. It was said, but it wasn't emphasized as I was reviewing the material I was thinking about this, was originally the caliph was to be a devout Muslim, and he was a leader of both the religion and the political situation, you know, the country or the caliphate when there was an entire caliphate, Mm -hmm. and that as different caliphs came through, That went away. I think it was only in the like the fifth one, the fourth or the fifth one, that it was no longer even a pretense that this was somebody who was a leader of the religion, that it became a political position. One and the same, though. Religious and political. But what I'm saying is the devout Muslim criteria went away. Okay. They were Muslim, but they weren't being, you know, in the sense that um, it 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 was a political position, not somebody who was uh, very sincere in practicing their faith. Okay, I got it. Yeah, I get it now. That kind of went away, and then what we'll see too as we move forward in history, and we're looking at maps, and you can see the Islamic State. And I hate to say the word dividing, but whereas when we put our last map up of, uh, I believe it was seven thirty. Three, two. two, the seven thirty-two. All of that caliphate was had one chief dude. Okay, over all that. But as time went by, they became separate areas. Now there might have been some. Um, I don't know enough about the situation to say that there wasn't one that the others were looking to for leadership and guidance, but they were being administrated separately. Okay. Um, as we. So as we went over that. And if you want to recap it, check out episode 62. Yes. As we move forward, what do we want to focus on now? What's next? Well, I'm excited because I have no idea. I well, have, I remember you saying in 62 that we were going to talk about one thing instead of another. And maybe that's what 63 is. No, that was 61. In 61, we decided to do the religious tenets. And then oh, okay. 62 was the political expansion. Okay. So the listeners probably know more than I do at this point. If they're <laughs> following along at home. So we're good. So now maybe a completely new... Well, a couple of things I want to say, just because I have some more... I don't know if it's really... Summary information and some new information about the impact of the Muslim expansion on not just history, but also Christian history. And we kind of touched on this in a couple of ways, but I think as we move into this next topic, it's good to remember it, okay? Okay. So how much the precise impact, how much it was, has been a matter of contentious debate within, like, Christian historians for a long time. Yet there is a fairly general consensus that exists on at least several aspects of the big picture of the impact of Muslim expansion on Christian history. This material is... 
back, coming back to our favorite historian, I don't know about favorite, our historian Mark Knoll in his book, Turning Points, okay? Mm. He said, the spread of Islam eastward over Egypt and North Africa was made easier by the weakness of Christianity in those regions. And we have touched on this. Um, And the weakness was probably because of the fall of Rome and the scat. No, not at all. Well, um, those areas, he said Egypt and North Africa. Okay. So like if you, if you think back to um, early church times, that was in the first 200, 300 years before the invasions start happening. We know that Augustine was from North Africa. I mean, there were some strong, deep Christian roots in those areas. But it was also an area where Arianism, the what became labeled as a heresy of not believing that Jesus was fully God, was very popular. So there was a was very much held to. So there was the weakness of Christianity was heresies had been involved. And then also, and I think, yeah, so let me just read this next sentence. Well, after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire at different times held that land, okay? And in particular after Justinian, which would have been just prior to the Muslim invasions, right? okay? And Constantinople is the headquarters of is the capital of the Eastern Empire. So just like we might say, well, Washington, D.C. did this when we mean that the federal government did this, okay, Mm -hmm. in America or in the United States, here he's saying heavy taxes imposed by Constantinople, meaning the Eastern Empire, as well as plundering armies from Persia made North Africans ready for new rulers. So Christianity was re week there were taxes and plundering going on so they could stand some protection okay yes the centuries of christian infighting which combined strife over doctrine with wearisome contests for power further undermined the internal strength of the christian community some historians have even speculated that the egyptian preference for forms of christian theology stressing the unity of god right because they didn't want to see Jesus as fully God, that this idea of monophy, monophatism, there we go, monophatism. Monophatism. The, the one God predisposed that, that that Egyptian preference for that predisposed the North Africans toward the radical monotheism of Islam. Because remember, that was one of his big points. It was radically monotheistic. There's no God but all in Muhammad is his prophet. The fact that within the room, the norms of the ancient world, Muslim conquerors were relatively tolerant also eased the transition from Christian to Islamic rule. So, made easier by the weakness in those regions. Yeah, okay? I get it now. The second thing... Uh, impact as the spread of Islam accelerated the division between Eastern and Western forms of Christianity. We mentioned that, but I wanted to just stress it again, especially by making communications between the Eastern and Western Mediterranean much more difficult because you've got all this conquered land in between and they don't have a way to communicate across. Formal division between the Western Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox depended upon developments in the church as well as in the broader world. But So we'll be talking about the formal division of the West and the East as a little bit further down the road, a few hundred years down the road. But it's a process. When we talk about it, we'll learn. It's not just one point in time. Mm -hmm. There is a point in time when they tend to talk about it, like, okay, this was the big deal thing that we never came back from. But as we've already seen, there's all these factors building up. You know, we started talking about it back with Chalcedon. You know, and maybe even before that with the move of the empire, mm-hmm. move of the headquarters. So it's a long process. But so formal division between the Western Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox depended upon developments in the church as well as in the broader world. Yet in that wider context, the vigorous presence of Islam in the Mediterranean was a most important factor. Even if the will had existed to bridge the East-West, Greek-Latin patriarchal, papal differences within Christianity. Did you get those three references? Yeah, East, West, we know that, the, and then the Greek, Latin, 
and then the patriarch and the papal differences within Christianity, the strain in politics, military affairs, trade, and communications that an expanding Islam exerted on both parts of the church would probably have been too great. So even if they had tried to bridge those gaps, and sometimes they did, the strain that Islam was putting on the area in politically, militarily, trade-wise and communications-wise might have been too much. Okay, so that's in the And then another reason, the expansion of Islam turned the attention of the papacy. Papacy being what? What does that mean? The leadership. The, the pope. The popes. The pope yeah. from the east to the north. This geographic refocusing signaled papal willingness to give up on the ideals of a Mediterranean Roman Empire in exchange for a new empire to the north. Okay, so you're Okay, yeah, because now we've got this big blockade. So the obstacle of being a part of this empire that still calls itself Romans ex and exists is even greater for the Pope, so they're looking elsewhere. They're, they're changing their vision. Um, and he says here, to underscore the power of the imperial ideal associated with Rome, it is striking to note that about 200 years later in what is now Russia, so 200 years would be around 1,000, okay, because these events we're going to be talking about are around 800. Um, Vladimir accepted the Christian faith, and soon his successors were proclaiming Moscow as a new Rome. Okay. So there's a big, what did he call that? Uh, to underscore the power of the imperial, imperial ideal, the ideal of having an imperial power. Do you remember what the Russian rulers were called? Czars. Coming from the word Caesar. Caesar. And that came after the conversion of Vladimir. About, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Okay, so the popes leading up to Leo III, who's going to be in our story, this is a different Leo than when we talked back several hundred years ago, had come to realize that the old connection between Rome and Constantinople was now bankrupt. The emperor in the east could not secure Europe against Islam. Besides, it was also clear that increasingly obvious cultural differences were making east-west cooperation difficult even if Islam were not in the picture. So it was that the papacy was set to exchange an Eastern for a Northern partner. Okay. Okay. So, so we're about to get to this guy. Yeah. So we did the, the whole Islam couple of episodes because it has now become very much a part of all of history and it's going to affect the shaping of the world as we go forward. And those three things that we just listed are ways in which so it's doing we'll that. pause for a minute and make a comment about what I'm hearing and learning. So growing up, college, young adult, marriage, I knew about Islam. Didn't know much about it. I just knew it was another religion. And even in the 90s, I knew that there were Islamic people that hated Christians that wanted to kill Christians. I'm, I'm not labeling Islam or, or labeling that faith. That's just my minimal knowledge of it. Well, and a lot of that was in the news and a lot of conflict well, was it, going over in that part of the world. Yes. And we were hearing stories. I wasn't paying attention to it until 9-11. Yeah. So, what I'm, so I'm saying I, I knew of it, but didn't think about it much. And then, of course, we have the events that kind of change everything. And now it kind of, it's, it's much, we're much more aware, Americans, I'm not saying Christians, I'm just saying Americans are much more aware of, of that faith and that religion and the extremists in it that want to harm Americans, but also maybe specifically Christians. I don't know if it's one, I don't know how they, that's, a, that's not what I'm about to say. What I'm saying is, is interesting in this podcast, learning the beginnings of the religion and the fact that, I don't know, 1,800 years ago, or no, no, 1,500 years ago, whatever, is when there began this conflict of the Christian, of the papacy and Islam, or 
Is my saying that right? Islam. Mm-hmm. And them, and you just sharing. Okay, now we're going to go to the north. We're going to partner with the north because of the Islam. We can't join with the east because it's, it's physically separated. Physically separated. And so it it's dawning on me in this moment in this podcast of how far back this. I w- I don't want to use the strong word conflict, mm-hmm. but just a division of people in faith started. Yeah, and this. Nothing that we've talked about so far in this has really been about a faith reason. How do I say that? Muhammad was not satisfied with Judaism or Christianity. And so, and and I had a, in a conversation with someone after these episodes have come out and they were talking about, Um, a conversation they had with somebody else who was Muslim, who basically said that the belief is that Jesus didn't get it right, that that whole Trinitarian thing was wrong, and Muhammad came to fix that. Muhammad came, and he was the final prophet, and there is but one God, and this is what you do to worship him. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that, and I see why that person would word it that way. I think that there's a lot more differences than just that. You know, there's different things that Muhammad's teaching yeah. than, than um, Jesus. But that's a side religious comment. I, what I'm trying to say is that the conflict has not been elevated here over religious reasons yet. That, that's going to happen. That's going to happen as we move forward in history. Yeah. Right now, it's the Muslims coming in and say, you can choose to continue to practice Christianity, but you're going to follow Islamic law and you're going to pay taxes to us. And here we come. And life might be a lot easier if you convert to Islam. But, you yeah. know, this this is kind of and it was as much a political thing as a religious thing and as it was going forward. But. To your point, what you're talking about, like now you're starting to realize these things, is in history, we don't have an understanding of the role of Islam in history. And we're going to learn some things in in these next few episodes that I think will be um, enlightening, if not surprising, Okay. for a, a lot of us uh, about that. So, yeah. Yeah, we did. It, it wasn't on the radar, but that's the way it is with so many things, right? We don't pay attention with them to them until it starts affecting us. Yeah, or comes into our world. So, yeah. So we're about to talk about a new Leo, right? A new Leo is going to be part of the story. I don't know about about to because we got to build up to him. But if we think back on the maps that we've been looking at, even the one that we just had up in the studio a little while ago of seven thirty two. Do you remember, Frank, on that map up to the north of Europe, in the northwestern part of Europe, we we see on that map, and you guys can click on the link, and I'll put it in these show notes, too. I'll try to remember to do that. But in the previous, in episode 62 show notes, there's going to be a link to this map of, of the Muslim nations in 732, the Islamic expansion, that's the way to say that. And so they had come all the way around up into Spain, pushing into Europe through mm-hmm. Spain. Do you remember what was just to the north of that? What con- what it's not country's not a good word. What people, what tribe was labeled up there on that map? I'm gonna guess the Franks. Yes. The Franks. For Frank, see? Yeah. You can remember that. I remember it because I knew it was the area of France. Yes, it is the areas and Germany to a large part at this time. Okay. So and I'm also thinking about having some Franks for dinner over here. <laughs> and also, if you go Frank. back a few episodes to the last time we put up one of those maps of the Middle Ages from the Penguin Atlas of the Middle Ages, where you see all the different tribes, okay, all the different, like this one, this one, this one, you'll notice if you start kind of flipping through those maps, you look at one and then you look at the next one and you look at the next one, that the Franks kingdom is growing. Whereas these others aren't growing like that. They're changing. There might be a big one this time, and then the next time it's a little smaller. And There seems to be a building in the Frankish territory that's lasting over time. Okay? So we're going to talk some about that. Okay? Um, as So I'm going to read a little bit. And this is from a book, a new—it's not a new book to— 
at all, but it's the first time we've used it in this podcast that I've referred to it. It's called Traditions and Encounters, and it's been published many times. This is an older edition. It's a textbook for like AP history. It's okay. either an early college or a late high school textbook. All right. And um, of course, our, our handy McKay's, you can always pick up good copies at McKay's books. And so I've been using Traditions and Encounters. So a lot of this initial material is coming from there. And then we'll refer, we refer to back to that a lot. Um, so this would be whatever bias McGraw-Hill has at the time that this was printed. Is that Tim and Faith? Tim and Faith Hill. Tim McGraw and Faith Hill. No, but that's cute. Is that not the... I never thought about that. Don't they do textbooks? That's not who makes the textbooks? Wouldn't that be funny? I thought it was Tim and Faith. You're just being silly. Because that's been around a lot longer than they have. That publishing company I thought has. they bought the, the brand. Oh, that would be cool. Okay. Um, as Roman authority crumbled during the late 5th century... Late 400s, right? Mm -hmm. So, so we're. It looks like we're we're going back and picking up some detailed Frankish history here, building us back up to the point where we just stopped. Which is kind of the podcast. Some yes. detailed Frankish history. That's it. Detailed Frankish history. I think that's a good title. Um, mm -hmm. As Roman authority crumbled <laughs> during the late fifth century, the Franks appeared unlikely to play a prominent role in European affairs. They had little experience in government and little exposure to Roman society. Some of their ancestors, now this is, had lived within Roman boundaries since about the third century. Remember how the Romans were making that habit of inviting people across the border to protect the border? Yeah. Okay. So that's some of these Frank, Frankish ancestors. Um had been living within Roman boundaries since about the third century, and a few had probably converted to Christianity. But the Franks had developed a group identity only during the third century, much later than the other Germanic peoples. Okay. Not until the fifth century did a strong military and political leader emerge from their midst. That leader was Clovis, who ruled the Franks from 481 until his death in 511. So this is their first strong military leader who could, like, pull mm -hmm. the people together. Clovis. Under Clovis, the Franks became the preeminent military and political power in Western Europe. Which, like I say, go back and look at those maps, and there's all these different tribes. So they're getting to claim preeminent military and political power. There wasn't a whole lot of rivals because they weren't joined together in such a large group, right? In... Uh, 486, Clovis led Frankish forces on a campaign that wiped out the last vestiges of Roman authority in Gaul, G-A-U-L. Then he imposed his authority on the Franks themselves. Finally, he organized campaigns against other Germanic peoples whose states bordered the Frankish realm in Gaul. By the time of his death, Clovis had thoroughly transformed the Franks. No longer were they just one among many Germanic peoples inhabiting a crumbling Roman Empire. Instead, they ranked as the most powerful and dynamic of the peoples building new states in Western Europe. Okay. Okay. So, one of the reasons for the Franks had a rapid rise was to do with religion. And once again, this is coming from a secular source. Okay. Originally, all the Germanic invaders of the Roman Empire were polytheists. What does that mean? Many gods. Yes, and usually idols, who honored a pantheon of warlike gods and other mm -hmm. deities, representing elements of nature such as the sun, the moon, and the wind, because Thor, god of I was about to say thunder, Thor. Mm -hmm. saw the movie, enjoyed the it. One? Yes, have you seen it yet? No. It's, it's, it's comedic. I thought they all kind of have been. Yeah, well, this one's much more so. And it's cool. And there's some there's there's people you know hidden in it too. This is kind of cool. When they show up and you go, actors that you know, and you go, Oh, cool. Oh, yeah, it's fun. Yeah. I'll look forward to talking to you about it after you see it. Okay. Repres so their gods represent elements of nature such as the sun, moon, and wind. As they settled in and around the Roman Empire, many Germanic peoples converted to Christianity. Most of them accepted Arian Christianity, remember, not mm -hmm. which would be opposed, which would be different than Trinitarian Christianity, which Roman Christianity was Trinitarian Christianity as well. The East, okay, and that's considered Orthodox Christianity mm -hmm. 
in the name, the Eastern Church becomes the Orthodox Church, but Orthodox means true belief. Yeah. And so a belief in the Trinity is a part of that. Okay. So, but most of these Germanic peoples that had converted had accepted Arian Christianity, which was popular in much of the Eastern Roman Empire because a lot of the places that didn't want to fall in with with, um, Nicaea or Chalcedon were over in the east. And remember, these German tribes are coming from east to west as they're migrating and invading. So that's where their roots were over that way. Um, In both Rome and Constantinople, however, church authorities followed the decisions of church councils at Nicaea in Constantinople and condemned Arian views as heretical. Unlike other Germanic peoples, the Franks remained mostly pagan until the time of Clovis, who converted to Roman rather than to Arian Christianity along hmm. with his army. So that played a big role because Clovis's conversion probably reflected the influence of his wife Clotilda, a devout hmm. Christian who had long ago who had long urged her husband to adopt her faith. Okay. So the fact that he converts to Roman Christianity really makes a difference in history. So back it up. Clotilda. Yes. We might not know the answer to this, but why was she a devout Christian? I don't know. Um, well, that's just like a little life lesson. Okay. Just- but I do have a cool story. So this is a thing. This is a little excerpt that's in this book. That's called, and it's called Sources from the Past. So one of the things that this textbook does is you can see as I'm flipping the pages where you come to see those green boxes. No, there's not any books. See the it's green just, boxes going by? Yeah, I see the green boxes, Angie. There's no book, y'all. Oh, I love my brother. <laughs> um, anyway, there's a, so those are like what they call sources from the past. So they go back and quote somebody that actually wrote about it. Mm-hmm. So this is from Gregory of Tours. On the con- this is called the conversion of Clovis, and this was written by Saint Gregory, different Gregory, not the Pope that we've talked about, mm. who lived from 538 to five ninety four, and he was Bishop of Tours in Central Gaul for the last twenty one years of his life. Okay, during that period, he composed a history of the Franks, which is the chief source of information about the early Franks. Okay. Okay. I just want to say an aside right here. If anybody knows of a source that is that is like um, a book, a resource that is like those maps of ancient Bible times I have, where you get a a map of today and they do an overlay Mm -hmm. of the Middle Ages, I would really like that. I bet it exists. Of the Middle Ages, you mean? Yeah. So yeah, so we can see exactly where Gaul was. I know it was like France, Germany, you know, somewhere in there, but. Lay it on a map. You can zoom in and see where this guy yeah. is writing this stuff down. Yeah, well, yeah, whatever. I just want this little overlay. So anyway, I'll work on that. Or just pop on over to Kofi. There's a comment section. You can tell mm. us where that is. I appreciate it. Okay, so so he was the Bishop of Tours for the last 21 years of his life, which would have been from seven, 574 to 594. And during that period, he composed a history of the Franks, which is the chief source of information about the early Franks. Gregory may have embellished the story of Clovis's conversion to Christianity, but his account indicates the significance of the event, both for Clovis and for the Roman church. So here's what he says. The queen, Clotilda, did not cease to urge him, Clovis, to recognize the true God and cease worshiping idols. But he could not be influenced in any way to this belief until at last a war arose with the Alamanni in which he was driven by necessity to confess what before he had of his free will denied. It came about that as the two armies were fighting fiercely, there was much slaughter and Clovis's army began to be in danger of destruction. He saw it and raised his eyes to heaven and with remorse in his heart, he burst into tears and cried, Jesus Christ, whom Clotilda asserts to be the son of the living God, who art said to give aid to those in distress and to stow and to bestow victory on those who hope in thee, I beseech the glory of thy aid with the vow that if thou wilt grant me victory over these enemies, and I shall know that power which she says that people dedicated in thy name have had from thee, I will believe in thee and be baptized in thy name. For I have invoked my own gods, but as I see, they have withdrawn from aiding me, and therefore I believe that they possess no power, since they do not help those who obey them. I now call upon thee. I desire to believe thee. Only let me be rescued from my adversaries. Mm-hmm. 
And when he said this, the Alamani turned their backs and began to dispense in fight, disperse in flight. And when they dispense in fight, disperse in flight. Yeah, those are two different meanings. <laughs> they are two different things. They got through fighting and they dispersed. Um, and when they saw their, that their king was killed, they submitted to the dominion of Clovis saying, let not the people perish further, we pray. We are yours now. And he stopped the fighting and after encouraging his men, retired in peace and told the queen how he had had merit to win the victory by calling on the name of Christ. Then the queen asked St. Remy, Bishop of Rheims, to summon Clovis secretly, urging him to introduce the king to the word of salvation. And the bishop sent for him secretly and began to urge him to believe in the true God, maker of heaven and earth, and to cease worshiping idols, which could help neither themselves nor anyone else. But the king said, I gladly hear you, most holy father, but there remains one thing. The people who follow me cannot endure to abandon their gods, but I shall go and speak to them according to your words. He met with his followers, but before he could speak, the power of God anticipated him, and all the people cried out together, O pious king, we reject our mortal gods, and we are ready to follow the immortal God whom Remy preaches. This was reported to the bishop, who was greatly rejoiced, and bade them get ready the baptismal font. And the king was the first to ask to be baptized by the bishop. And so the king confessed all-powerful God in the Trinity and was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and was anointed with the holy ointment with the sign of the cross of Christ. And of his army, more than 3,000 were baptized. So, so there's a story of Clovis' conversion from St. Gregory of Tours. Well, comment I was going to make a minute ago is... Like Clotilda, was that her name? Mm-hmm. She's a important factor in that story because he would not have called on Christ had she not been urging him. Urging to. him. Yeah. So what is her backstory? So uh, we don't have to figure that out right now. But the point is, I think of people that you know that impactful in my life personally, or impactful yeah. in the world, or impactful leadership in the in the church you trace it back to how you right know, they so whoever was an influence in clotilda's life for her to come to christ ended up you know being tr- a part of roman va- culture vastly affecting world history the future yeah yeah just a little guy, person back there well i think Who about knows? that there's uh, there's a country song in here somewhere but i think about why am i a christian has something to do with how i was raised why were my parents Christian has to do with how they were raised. Yeah. And and not all of our conversions have to do with how we were raised. No, no. I'm yeah. just trying to connect the dots for me. Yeah. And I think, like, I've, I remember asking our mom, I don't know if I remember asking her when or how she became a Christian, but her household was Christian because her parents met at a Baptist church. It was Methodist church. Wasn't it? I yeah. think it was a Baptist church. I'm pretty her sure it parents. was. Her parents were Methodists. Oh, so her parents were met at a Methodist church. Yeah. Our so, dads were Baptists. Okay. So our grandparents, who were born in the late 1800s, met at, in, church. at church probably around 1915. No, after World War One. He so came 19, back from the war and they met and married. So 1919, 1920. Mm-hmm. So a church was involved in that mm-hmm. meeting, which means somebody that brought them to church is responsible for my existence, you know, a hundred years later or yeah. a, it's just an interesting. It is. It's the, the well, it, that's the way it works. That's why we do the podcast, right? Well, I don't, I don't do no. the podcast for my grandparents. <laughs> so I do it clear. for following the dots. No, they don't, they're not alive. So they don't really, they wouldn't be able to listen to it. <laughs> I do it for my grandchildren. Yeah. I do it for my grandchildren too. Yeah. One day. <laughs> but no, we are all connected. We've said that before. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, that's an interesting thing. Another reason that I wanted to... We're all to, connected to, to, to uh, Clotilda. Yeah. Another in- reason I wanted to read this story is a couple of things. Did it sound familiar to you at all? Have we talked about another time yeah, in history? Constantine. Yes. That's interesting. Also... 
If you're familiar with the Old Testament, like really familiar, like you read it, not just... Which I've got an Old Testament question that because I've been reading it. Yeah, okay. And I need a reminder on some Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Okay, good. I'm very confused. Okay, we'll jump over to that. So, but if you're reading the Old Testament, you'll see that many times this is how the battle goes. If you're calling on God, if, if God is with you, because David would ask God, will you be with me? And he wouldn't go out to battle until he had a word from God that God would be with him and be with him meant bring them to victory, right? Mm-hmm. And so things went well when you were following the Lord, okay? So this story is very analogous to Scripture when you read about it, and particularly the part about God going before Do you understand what I mean when I say that? Mm -hmm. So God obviously went before to these soldiers, to these men, to these people, and and caused them to have an openness to following him so that when Clovis comes and says, you know, comes to ask them, they're like, yes, we're with you. Okay, this is what we want. Um, Also, when something we're going to be talking about in a short period in this episode or the next one is the role of the king in these Germanic tribes and the role of the gods and the association that it was a very religious culture. So it, it was very much that the soldiers were going to follow their king. And I think it's interesting that Clovis felt that way. He's like, okay, Bishop, I hear what you're saying. Sounds good to me, but I can't. I can't force my men to give up their gods. Right. So that's kind of an interesting thought too. That I can't force their men to give up their gods. And like we say, we don't know how much of this was embellished, but it's there's still a lot there to chew on and think about. I just thought that was a neat story from the past. So Clovis, being the first Frankish military leader king who like united this group of tribal people into the Franks, and then he converts to Roman. So that immediately gives him a... Because he chose Roman Christianity and not Arian Christianity, to whom does he now have a relationship, not Jesus, that he wouldn't have had otherwise? The Pope. Exactly. Okay, so we're going to come back to that. So... The Franks' conversion had large political implications. By adopting Roman rather than Arian Christianity, the Franks attracted the allegiance of the Christian population of the former Roman Empire, as well as recognition and support from the Pope and the hierarchy of the Western Christian Church. We've already talked about how Gregory sent out missionaries throughout the area, which would be around this time, and the monasteries are growing and all this, so you've got relationships there. Alliance with the Church of Rome greatly strengthened the Franks, who became the most powerful of the Germanic peoples between the 5th and the 9th centuries. 5th and the 9th century. So you moving through all that time, the Franks are the most powerful of those. Okay. Okay. After Clovis's death, the Frankish kings lost much of their authority. Okay. Uh Uh-oh. Now I'm going to jump back over. I'm just trying to reference my sources here. So... Most of this upcoming material is coming back from plain language and church history and plain language, that book we've referenced before. Um, I'm going to put in the show notes a link to our references rather than just putting each individual book. We have a place on our website where we're listing references, and then I'll just link you over One there. Onethingonly.org. Click yeah. on the History of the Eyes of Faith podcast tab. Right. But in the show notes will be a direct link that you just click that and you'll be... In there. In the show notes. In the show notes. Show notes. Show notes. So. Show notes. <laughs> Do you enjoy that word, Frank? Well, it's an inside joke with producer Wes. Okay. At the same time, a new center of power arose from the landed, arist- the landed aristocrats. More and more authority shifted into the hands of landowners. Okay. In the area. Mm-hmm. Among these powerful landowners, one emerged as the most influential figure. So. The previous statement, the Frankish kings lost much of their authority. One of the things that was a policy of the Frankish kings was they would they would divide their kingdom amongst their sons. So rather than what we're familiar with is like the oldest son or a son having the kingdom, this was divided among the sons. 
And that's a lot of the reason they lost their authority, because not all of those gods are going to be great rulers. That reminds me of Old Testament stuff. Sometimes. Twelve tribes. Yeah. So, so the authority is going away. And at the same time, the powerful landowners are gaining more um, authority, more and more authority is shifting into their hands. And at this time, an influence. An influential figure in the aristocratic kingdom arose, and he was called the mayor of the palace. The mayor of the palace. So this was in the... mayor of the palace. Yeah, I knew you'd like that. Um, A new day dawned for the kingdom of the Franks in 714. Okay, now remember what was Clovis's dates in the 500s. In 714, when Charles Martel... Mm, That's a very interesting name for the time. Charles Martel... (laughs) Why? We got Clovis, we got Clotilda, we got the palace of the the mayor of the palace, and Charles Martel. Who is the mayor of the palace. He's the first mayor of the palace. Or not the first, the first one we hear about. Is that Chuck Martel over? Okay, now, we're going to be talking about, (laughs) as we move forward, the Carolingian dynasty. Mm. Okay? And its name comes from its founder, Charles, which means, which is pronounced Carolus in Latin. Oh, and so it's named after the Carolingian, Carolingian dynasty lasts for a while and becomes a big deal. And it's named after Charles, the mayor of the palace. Martel allowed the Moravian kings. Now, the Moravian kings were the descendants of Clovis. Okay. Okay. To Moravian? Moravian. Well, where did that come from? Merovingian. Merovingian. M-E-R-O-V-I-N-G-I. It has to do with their surname. Okay. Okay. I don't remember the whole details there. But he allowed them to retain their claim to the throne, but they were mere figureheads, and the real power rested with the mayor of the palace, which a lot of times happens with the chief of staff. Okay. Okay. So you kind of get the idea. Many students remembered Charles for his victory in the invaders of Europe. Okay. This was at the Battle of Tours, which was in... uh, 7-11. Okay, now I'm can really confused. Yeah. The Battle of Tours was in 7-11? <laughs> or maybe the battle was in 7-18. I believe it was at Circle K, y'all. No, no, no. No, wait. I'm getting my dates fixed, mixed up. It was in 7-32. Okay. The All Battle right. of Tours? So let me read this. Many students remember Charles for his victory against the invaders of Europe. Or now, who was invading Europe? Well, lots of people were, so let's come back to that. This triumph earned him the surname Martel, which meant the hammer. Charles the Hammer. Okay. In 711, a Muslim army from North Africa had invaded Spain. And by 718, the weak kingdom of the Visigoths, which had been the kingdom that was in Spain, had collapsed. With most of the peninsula under their control, the Muslims began making raids across the Pyrenees Mountains. In further into Europe. And in 732, Charles Martel met them near Tours, which, if you remember, Gregory was the bishop at Tours. That wrote the comment that wrote about, the comment about Clovis. And Clovis. Yes. So Charles Martel met them near Tours, deep within the Frankish kingdom. So now they're coming deep in the Frank kingdom. He inflicted heavy losses upon them. So during the night, they retreated towards Spain and were never again a major threat to Central Europe. So he is credited with turning the Muslims away and saving Europe for Once Christianity. For Charles the Hammer over here. Yes. Oh, Chuck the Hammer. Yes, 732, the Charlie Battle the of Tours. Okay. Charlie the Hammer Martel away. And so he was mayor of the palace. Mayor of the palace. Oh. Shut up. <laughs> Why is that so funny? <laughs> I can tell you later. <laughs> okay. All right. Charles Martel's son... Pepin the Short. Hey. Pepin. Pepin the Short. 741 to 768. Pepin the Short, for real. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Was the, a worthy successor Tyrion to Tyrion Lannister or <laughs> Pepin the Short. That's a funny joke because Tyrion Lannister was a little person from okay. Game of Thrones. Okay. Was a worthy successor to his father. He thought the time had come, however, to legalize the regal power exercised by the mayors of the palace. So now he's trying to take the power, right? Pepin the Short? Yep. He turned to the Pope for a ruling stipulating that whoever had the actual power should be the legal ruler. 
not the king, okay. but whoever had the actual power. And who has the power? The mayor of the palace. There we go. He got what he wanted. Pepin the short over here. With the papal blessing, Boniface, the great English missionary among the Germans. So Boniface, is a, his name's going to come up again. He's a missionary among the Germans, great renowned. So in 751, Boniface crowned Pepin king of the Franks. Okay. Now that's an interesting thing to take note of. Who's crowning who? The Pope. No. Not the Pope, but the local missionary, the local representative okay. of the Pope. Okay. So now the church is crowning the king. The king. Okay. So the Eng- who actually was technically the mayor of the palace. Exactly. The great English missionary among the Germans crowned Pepin king of the Franks. The last Merovingian was quietly shelved in a secluded monastery. The last king was quietly shelved in a secluded monastery. Three years later, the Pope blessed the coup d'etat by crossing the Alps and personally appointing Pepin in the Old Testament manner as the chosen of the Lord. So the Pope... Alps is a big geographical barrier. And this was between Italy and the Franks. Yes. And so now the Pope comes three years later. Boniface crowns him. Pope comes three years later and blesses him and everything's cool. Now we have a new king that's no longer Merovingian kings. We now have Carolingian, Carolingian Kings, man. Kind of like Christmas time. I want to say Gian because it's G-I-A-N, but I think it's Carolingian. Yeah. At Christmas time, I go Carolingian. <laughs> Here we go, a Carolingian. Okay. Just about there. Okay. Um, as one historian explains it, behind the Pope's action lay his need for a powerful protector. In 751, the Lombards, another tribe, had conquered the imperial territory of Ravenna, the seat of Byzantine government in Italy. So the place where the Eastern Roman Empire had their seat of government in Italy gets captured by the Lombards. And they were demanding tribute from the Pope and threatening to take Rome. So now the Lombards have taken over Italy. This is in 751. We've seen a lot of this stuff on the maps when we look at all the movements. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... The Pope needed a powerful protector, so going in, a, you His know, protector is now. Well, except uh, he's on the other side of the Alps, so that's yeah. kind of difficult. Following Pepin's coronation, the Pope secured his promise of armed intervention in Italy and his pledge to give the papacy, papacy territory of Ravenia once it was conquered. Okay, so now Pepin is pledged to protect and conquer for the Pope. In 756, a Frankish army forced the Lombard king to surrender his conquest, and Pepin officially conferred the Ravenna territory upon the Pope, known as the Donation of Pepin. Mm. The gift made the Pope a temporal ruler over the Papal States. Remember, Papal States, they show up in history for a long time, which is a strip of territory that extended diagonally across Italy and include Rome. So it kind of cuts it in half. That's the Papal States. From coast to coast, Peter recovered his sword. What does that mean? The Apostle Peter recovered his sword, meaning his rule, his power. And who's the Apostle Peter? What are they referring to there? Pope. The Pope. Pope. Yeah, Yeah. the descendant of Peter. Yes. So the phrase is, Peter recovered his sword. This alliance between the Franks and the papacy affected the course of European politics and Christianity for centuries. It accelerated the separation of the Latin from the Greek church by providing the papacy with a dependable Western ally in place of the Byzantines, hitherto its only protector against the Lombards. It created the papal states, which played a major role in Italian politics until the late 19th century. Wow. And by the ritual anointing, it provided Western kingship with a religious sanction. Western... So... Is that not cool? And it, yeah, it connects back to Martel, Pepin, Clovis. Pepin and then Martel and then Clovis. Yeah. And Clotilda. Mm-hmm. And the Franks. Yes. A big part of church history. Yeah, Western history. Western history. Because we're getting to the really big part. And that will be the teaser for episode 64. Episode 64. So why do we learn about these Franks? We've learned some important things already, but it gets bigger and more important. Yes. 
Well, we're wrapping up 63. Yes. I didn't bring it up at the beginning, but there is a mystery gift in the studio. We're not getting to it in this episode, but it's here. So that means that we're going to have to get to it in episode 64. And I hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Show notes. Check out the show notes. I can tell that story. No, we're at, we're, we're too long. If you want to hear the story, just ask. Oh, you know, hop, ask us in our chat room on Kofi. On Kofi. Is that we've what got, Discord is? Yes. We've got some, we've got, so you, you join our Discord, what do they call it? Server. When mm-hmm. you become a member okay. through our Kofi site, you join our Discord server and we've got several folks in there and we're Yeah. Ask the question in show notes. Yeah. We'll tell you about the show notes. The, the title of this episode, folks, is... A Frankish history. What was it we said? I don't know. We got to look it back up. Something like that. I want to do it right now. Okay. Importance of Frankish history. I don't remember. I can't Frankish look it history. up right It's now. just going to be called Frankish history. All right. See you next time. This has been History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Please rate and review, subscribe, or follow wherever you stream your podcast. You may also contact us and comment at onethingonly.org. Just click on the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast tab. You can also support this podcast by checking the link in our bio at ko-fi.com. That's ko-fi.com. Thanks for listening.